and welcome. This is Mad Hat Economics recording from the Cornell University. My name is Yu Dong. I'm a graduate student majoring in applied economics. Here is Elaine. Hello. <laughs> okay. Today is that too show, much? <laughs> we invited our old friend, Professor David Just. Hello. And our new guest star, Professor Nancy Chow. Hi. Hi, everybody. <laughs> Professor Nancy Chow joined the faculty of, in the Cornell Dyson School in 1999. Her research um, fall on three main areas, international trade, regional economics, and economic development. And as we know, after Valentine's Day in 2018, we saw some news reported the sweatshop conditions at major flower suppliers. The sweet Valentine's Day means intensified bullying for workers of largest flower supplier in the southern hemisphere. So today we will talk about Professor Chow's research on sweatshops, jobs, and decent work. So for the first, could I ask you, Professor Chow? So what's the definition for the sweatshops? Right. No, no. So first, th uh, thank you so much for inviting me. This is this is one of my favorite topics of all time. <laughs> In fact, uh, I've been thinking about working on this for a long time, and one thing led to another. It never happened until recently. Um, so, so definition of sweatshop is very broad. So it depends on who you're talking to. And according to the U.S. Department of Labor, right, uh, they define any uh, any firm or any factory that uh, violates two or more labor regulations uh, oh. as a place of sweatshop. Right, it's just that. So, what what are these labor standard violations that they can end up doing? Would be um, non-payment of wages or late payment of wages, uh, excessive overtime, uh, health and safety violations, and so on. So, so this is a study done by the U.S. General Accounting Office back in late 80s, early 90s, where this this issue just came to the fore because of all kinds of reasons, including globalization. That, in fact, of the 60 labor inspectors that they interviewed, 54 of them said that in the U.S. there's labor uh, sweatshop conditions uh, going on. And so, so it's a pervasive issue, not just in developing countries, but in the U.S. as well. So, so was that definition developed mainly just for accounting purposes or... or, or for regulation? I would say so, right? So for the U.S., so exactly how do we define a, a factory as having having an issue? And so maybe one is too few, two is just right. So I don't know. <laughs> I have not spoken to anybody about why two. Yeah. Um, but but worldwide, there is also no no fixed definition of what switch up. But, but essentially, it is, it's these issues, right? Having to do with a wage payment that's too low, overtime uh, that is excessive, and finally, safety and health conditions that are suboptimal or just too poor to keep the, the work um, productive. Uh, yeah. So are there any personal motivation for you to do that research on this topic? Oh, I've been dreaming about doing that. <laughs> <laughs> I've always been excited by sweatshops. <laughs> no, uh, so, so there are all kinds of reasons. You know, so my, my own research agenda has always been related to labor in developing mm. countries. And so I've been working off the list of labor standards in the ILO. And they include child labor, forced labor, minimum wage legislation, and discrimination-related issues. And so, so sweatshop is interesting interesting because it, it kind of relates to all of these aspects, right? You know, wages, hours, children, and all that. So I think, you know, you, you, uh, 
have had to have to address that at some point. But I think as a personal story, um, I, I grew up in Hong Kong in the 70s and 80s. And, mm-hmm. and that's when industrialization uh, took place in Hong Kong, right? Mm-hmm. Factories everywhere, everybody's employed. And even at home, my mom would actually take things from the factory and ask us to do them at home. I remember putting together, you know, in, I live in Hong Kong, so there's no such thing called measuring spoons. Yeah. We don't measure. You just you just cook, and so so she, like my wife. <laughs> and so so she, you know she, this whole bucket full of spoons that we would sort at home, put them together and staple it on a piece of paper. Mm-hmm. I found that fascinating because you know what is that? But of course those are the things that once they're processed they get shipped to the U.S. Now I've I've, I've you know assembled a little uh, Santa Claus. You know you pull it and then it'll light up the the nose and and I looked at it. <laughs> who would be. <laughs> <laughs> but in any case, my mom, you know, I wanted us to do that because, you know, everybody's doing it. And I think deep down she was just trying to make us understand that, you know, money comes from somewhere, comes through hard work and so But in any case, right, despite all that was happening in Hong Kong, lots of people employed in factories. You know, at that time, most people are employed, are high school educated, right? Mm-hmm. I've never seen factory conditions as bad as what we are seeing now and what is being reported now. So, for example, I'll give you one example, mm-hmm. right? So this is, I'm just quoting from the New York Times. Mm-hmm. Um, the Shanghai Academy of Social Sciences did a study in the Pearl River Delta. And also, this is uh, an area near Hong Kong. Lots of factories. You know. And they estimated that in one year, in just that region, right, 40,000 fingers were actually either broken or lost in factories. So is that... Efficient <laughs> in some way. <laughs> I, I, Injury efficient. <laughs> I, I, I don't think so. Although if you talk to any economist just mm. in general about the issue of sweatshop, they will say, well, these are two willing parties. A worker is willing to come and get a job and an employer is willing to hire. Two willing individuals coming together cannot be wrong, quote unquote. Uh, and so, in fact, there are economists, like trade economists, um, Paul Krugman, who's written a piece that is very well cited, right, um, it's called In Praise of Sweatshop Labor. In Praise of Sweatshop Labor. <laughs> Years back, um, my hero, Joan Robinson, another mm. economist, uh, mm-hmm. has a famous saying that says that the only thing that is worse than being exploited by capitalists mm-hmm. is not being exploited by capitalists. Uh. <laughs> So, so there is a very strong bias, right, and a market-oriented bias when it mm. comes to discussions concerning sweatshop labor. But when you, you know, actually look at the sweatshop conditions and people, what people are going through, it just doesn't seem right. Um, so so in, in, in that sense, I think that's, that's all a part of the motivation of, of that work. Mm. You know, in, in a way, you know, the belief in that market is going to solve problems, you know, much like everybody saying that free trade is great and it's unconditionally great. You know, it's something that we have to think a little bit more, you know, in nuanced terms. Uh, yeah. So, so I think that's that's what drives. Yeah. It is sort of bizarre from my point of view to think about the the, the economics behind the sweatshop and why economists would would go so far as to praise it. I mean, so so long as everybody is willing to participate, you can say it's making people better off than they would be otherwise. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. But we've had a long history of, of pointing out that uh, you know market power can be exploited to make those relationships unfair. Yes, yes. So it's I, that's it is sort of surprising to me. Yeah. 
But the interesting thing is that all of these economies came from, you know, wanting to 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 make the better the, the workers better off, right? Mm. And so so Paul Krugman is not saying, well, let's we, I'm all for employers, and so let's do everything that makes the employer. But no, I mean his his, his motivation is to say, this is where the jobs are going to be, and yeah. so workers should not be forbidden from taking those jobs, mm. right? So so it's that's his starting that, point, and yeah. so he's not saying. You know, I don't care about the well-being of workers. He's saying that that's the the, the best thing that they can expect, right? I mean, so yeah. that's a lot of times how how arguments are made when it comes to wages and suboptimal wages and so on. And and John Robinson similarly. So so, yeah. So um, I I don't know. So so yeah. That that's the motivation. But so solving the issue is is also is also a different story altogether. Yeah, and it, I I think you mentioned the market power as you said. Yeah, uh, that's a good point. Because consumer. Like nowadays, especially like when some major reporters or newspapers report those stories, mm-hmm. consumers will have this power to push the industry back. Say, okay, we want to know the source. Yes. Do you do you notice the consumer side, like uh, how they could impact the uh, uh, condition of sweatshop and yeah, just yeah. in general the labor market? So I think that's a really good point, right? So a lot of, you know, uh, the closest example that I can give would be in university campuses where, mm-hmm. you know, they have, uh, I forgot the name of the consortium of universities, students who basically insist that uh, every piece of clothing that you buy from campus stores must be, you know, sweat free. Uh-huh. Um, and so, so Cornell is a part of that consortium. Um, so there were debates about, and I remember being a part of that debate about, you know, is it really good for the workers for you to be doing that? You know, because after all, that's where the jobs come from. So so that's at the, at the individual kind of consumer uh, uh, level. There's, as of now, no sweat-free labels in that sense, I don't believe. Uh-huh. Uh, maybe yeah, uh, fair trade, fair, yeah, fair fair trade, trade rugs, you know, uh, carpets. I think uh, there might be something that is uh, closer. But uh, but at the national level, the U.S. has uh, mm. a, a trade law that is called mm. Trade and Development Act. It's been you know constantly revised, and uh, during the Bush administration, is also revised once again, which basically says that the U.S. generalized system of preferences is is our good tariffs. <laughs> 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 Not the high tariffs. Not the, our, be careful about that yes, these days. Yeah. Yes, yes. Our, our tariff discounts <laughs> uh, will be given to developing countries, but they must fulfill a list of list of conditions. One of those conditions would be the promise that they will they will use decent um, labor conditions, and treat their workers fairly. And so, in fact, the U.S. Trade Representative Office is, is obligated every year to produce a list of countries mm-hmm. and a list of goods that will be deemed as problematic. Oh, uh, hmm. that's a kind of good way uh, or a clever way to mm. um, to use tariff as a weapon and yeah. then push yeah. the international like awareness of yeah because yeah. I, I I believe that the situation varies based on country and in countries yes. uh, different countries might not pay more attention to this. But yes, yeah. and in fact, there's a very, very famous case where, uh, this is during the Clinton years, mm-hmm. where um, that was the first time the, David, you would remember, you know, our, our fellow uh, friends here, they're, 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 they're younger, uh, so something called the multi-fiber arrangement. Maybe you're too young too. I, yes. <laughs> yeah. Vaguely, vaguely. Yeah, yeah. But essentially, you know, a long time ago when you want to trade, trade, you know, uh, buy, buy goods, buy, buy uh, clothing from, from China, no, it's all based on quotas. 
purpose, right? So mm-hmm. you, China can export X unit and, and Vietnam can export Y units. Uh, and so that gives the U.S. a lot of leverage on, on these individual countries. Right? Yeah, so, you know, so if you want me to raise my quota, then you must do X. And so Bill Clinton very famously has used that to force uh, Vietnam to allow workers to unionize. You know, prior to that, they were not allowed to. So, so there were things like that. Uh, mm-hmm. So there are lots of opinions standing on the developing country's perspective because uh, uh, lots of people think sweatshops provide a lot of job opportunities for the people in developing country and mm-hmm. they can gain money to like for their children's yeah. education. Yeah. So that's a good thing for them. So yes. how do you think yes. of that? So, so it's you know with with wages and employment that's definitely a good thing and so so I, I think there's a two parts of the debate right the one part of the debate is how do we think about the issue of poverty which is basically mm-hmm. what you're referring to right and so so I think a, a big driving force of, of uh, development economists, you know, thinking about how to solve the issue of poverty comes from, well, give them jobs, right? Just offer them jobs. And if they have jobs, it'll be fine. Far less of an emphasis have been given to the quality of those jobs. And by that, I mean health, the possibility of advancement, the mobility of these workers once they're on the job. You know, so we we almost feel like, you know, I almost feel like when reading the literature that these, these are kind of uh, luxury items, right? That that you know, if you, you know, have a job and that's good enough. Yeah. And so sweatshop is precisely that, right? It, it gives you more jobs, right? But does it mean that it comes? You know, so have we forgotten that it comes at a cost of a number of different things that you know we, we cannot you know account for and like, internalize, and so on. So 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 in in a sense, that's what drives the paper. You know, is to to point out that you know the by ignoring health, by ignoring the productivity consequences of these work conditions, and by ignoring the fact that employers actually don't have the right incentives to keep those things at the right level for the economy as a whole, mm. we may not be doing the economy as a whole uh, a, a service. So, so what yeah. leads to conditions where the the, yeah. the employers basically are incentivized to create these sweatshops rather than something that it is a little bit more nurturing of, of their labor base, right? Yes, yes. What, 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 what does it? Why do they occur? Yeah. <laughs> what changed? Yeah, so so I think right. So so it, it's it's also in our in our heads as well. You know, in, in a in a regular you know we call it competitive labor market. Mm-hmm. You know, basically where every worker knows the conditions and wages of every job that will be offered in this whole labor market, then no employer can get away with offering a sweatshop job, mm. because no one will take that sweatshop job. Yeah. Right, but but the truth is. Such a labor market doesn't exist, uh, particularly in developing countries. You know, imagine the, the the imagery in China where workers are shipped. You know, they're bused from rural areas to go and work in factories. They stay in the dormitory. Their documents are taken away, and they just they just stay in the factory. There's no mobility. Yeah. And prior to the days of the cell phone, I don't even know what's going on outside in the, in the outside world. Right? Yeah. So so now with cell phones, people are you know kind of saying that things are slowly changing. So, so the, the possibility for, for, for employers to, to simply you know, trap a worker in a suboptimal mm-hmm. situation is, is much more likely. I feel the same way is true about uh, apparel workers or textile workers, even in, in LA, San Francisco. And these are migrant workers, or in many cases, illegal migrant workers that mm-hmm. they don't have a choice uh, but to work. That's, with, yeah. yeah, I mean, I, I, I wonder when you talk about sweatshop type conditions in the US mm-hmm. exactly yes. how much of that is, is exploiting 
illegal immigration yes. um, and and you know, undocumented labor. Yes, right? and so so that's not just in textile; it's it's, it's blatant in 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 agriculture as well. Absolutely, mm-hmm. right? I mean, yeah. so so so. No work has been done, so I, I, I hope more can be done. <laughs> yeah. uh, but it's just impossible to collect that kind of data. So one of our colleagues, uh, Jenny Ift, uh, started doing some work on, you know, she has some interesting data on farm-level labor employment and the impact of changing the enforcement strength of uh, of illegal immigration. So so lots of interesting stuff is going on in Dyson. So 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 go and talk to her next, please. So what well, what are some of these uh, major major things that employers, uh, sweatshop employers, uh, tend to do? So so a, a main part of this paper actually is to to point out the the market imperfections that's going on, and so so the uh, one main thing is in fact this inability to become mobile. So so there's this. Mm. Workers are supposed to be able to search for a job on the job, but these workers cannot. I mean, they, in fact, you know, if you look at a lot of the reports that are written by, not by academics, because we don't have the means, but by, by you know, let's say the China Labor Watch. I don't know if you guys are familiar with that organization. Uh, recently, they have one of their operators in China jailed, um, oh. incarcerated, because they're doing stuff they're not supposed to be doing. Okay. They are um, kind of investigating undercover mm. inside yeah. factories. You know, they, they get a job <laughs> for the sake of collecting information in different factories. So that so, they can see what the conditions are. Yes. yes. Yeah, so, I can see how that might not go over well in China. Yeah. <laughs> so so they have, you know, but at the time I, I wrote this paper, right, they, they mm. had over 400 different reports on 400 different factories, you know, producing things from, from Disney to, to Walmart to wow. Dell computers, Apple computers, oh, iPhones, iPods. And in every single case, there's blatant violations. But in every single case, what is being documented, you know, to me, is that employers use very ingenious means to stop workers from leaving. And these methods include not paying them on time, right? Mm-hmm. So if you so so you can leave, yeah, leave. But then you let go of the money that the firm owes you, so you yeah. don't leave. Okay, so you, you don't leave after a while. You realize you can't leave. Right, um, so it becomes a norm. Um, they also make it very difficult for you to leave by saying that if you leave, then I will withhold with withhold X percentage of your wages. So, so they they do lots of things to make sure that that is the case. And so, so our mm. our standard assumption that workers are free to leave simply is not is not true. So it's not yeah. So, so this is a trap. Right. They they've been swindled yes. and uh, and they can't free themselves from it because they don't have the market power. Yes, mm-hmm. and so so but and then once they're trapped, the, the the willingness on the part of employers to give them the right pay or the right conditions simply disappears. So but turn it around, right? And then mm-hmm. ask you know so so why would workers be willing to take these jobs to begin with? Then mm-hmm. it's another vicious cycle where since a worker can only sample one or two jobs in in the whole labor market, mm-hmm. you know the decisions once I have one one of these job offers is, do I take it or do I not? Mm-hmm. Now, if my expectations about the labor market is that, well, everybody or more or less work in conditions like this, uh-huh. even though there might be a really good job out there, I, I can't find it, right? Yeah. So so mm-hmm. what do I do, right? So, so is this supply creating its own demand, right? So mm-hmm. a lot of sweatshop employers making workers have very low expectations about what is available out there. Mm. And so they'll take the job. So I guess, you know, when, when we're talking about the U.S. And, and sweatshops, I can sort of see how, you know, jobs like that could exist simultaneously with, mm-hmm. you know, 
good jobs. Yes, yes. <laughs> as, mm-hmm. as there is this population of undocumented or other people who just can't get yeah. the work otherwise. Yes. They, they, they are, it's, it's, it's an inferior labor market, yes. if you will, that's, yes. that's out there. Yeah. Are these existing side by side in, in other countries that we're talking about? Or is it, is it just pervasive and there, there's no other opportunity? No, no, there, there are other opportunities, right? So in fact, a lot of work on trade uh, specifically um, mm. talks about, you know, you know, neighboring factories offering different wages, different conditions. But you know, there there are always characteristics why some some factories offer better conditions. More typically, these are partially foreign-owned, in part for some you know some foreign ownership, depending on the type of goods that they manufacture and so on. So so, but but they do coexist. And so the trick is to to ask why do they coexist, and if they coexist, what what are the things that you mm. need to do to to nudge it such that more factories are on the good side. Yeah. <laughs> so, okay. so no, uh, so I had fun yeah. working on it. So mm-hmm. do you think banning sweatshops will bring the, a more efficient labor market or a more efficient labor market will, will mm-hmm. ban sweatshops? Mm-hmm. <laughs> mm-hmm. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> That's two sides. Yeah. What do you think? <laughs> <laughs> My, my my educated guess, banning tends not to work very often on a lot of things. Yeah. yeah. But I don't know what, I guess, I, I, my question to you is, what are the barriers to an efficient labor market that could they could shine a light on this and make it so workers don't right. take these jobs to right. begin with. So I think the the paper basically finds that there there are situations where where it would be better just to stop. But there are many ways of doing it. Uh, you don't have to say wholesale. I I will I will have full enforcement on every single factory and I will visit them every day to make sure that doesn't happen because mm. the, the cost of doing so is just Can't uh, do it. Yeah. prohibitively high. But um, but the paper also shows that you know small changes in things. Right. Suppose mm-hmm. you you require that factories offer them better opportunities. You require factories, you know, so a little bit to the side can can empower workers to reject these jobs already. So so um, I wouldn't say banning them. So but, you know, you have to empower <laughs> workers to to have enough right to have mm-hmm. enough power to to reject these jobs. And overall, if that happens, then the paper shows that, you know, the economy mm-hmm. would be better off because you stop these very unproductive mm-hmm. Finger-breaking jobs from mm-hmm. happening. Uh, you also, you know, facilitate employers to become more competitive as well. Yeah. Mm. And those workers can do more meaningful things instead of just yeah. very like very simple. <laughs> yeah. yeah. But it's like machine. Yeah. yeah. But but the thing about China is it's 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 a it's a plethora of, of ironies, right? While while sweatshops still exist, there are some factories already hiring robots. Oh yeah. yeah. Right. So. <laughs> So, <laughs> so hmm, uh, you know, all these labor-saving technologies, um, you know, uh, is, is fascinating, mm. I, I feel. Yeah, yeah China's confusing to me always. <laughs> <laughs> they're, they're a, well, it's just, it's just a very large country, and yeah. so you find these sorts of contradictions. Yes, <laughs> so, but, but therefore, I think there's a lot of really, really interesting work that can be done. Mm-hmm. Um, just yeah. trying to understand these things better. Mm. It, but except uh, what governments can do in terms of policy, do, uh, you you just mentioned the uh, the governments could better regulate the market. Mm-hmm. What could the market do? Like you know, employee side and then also uh, as the labor, right. uh, like they wouldn't be consumer, but yeah, on um, the the job provider and uh, the job receiver like yeah. what they can do yeah. would you argue that education mm-hmm. what else i, I was think ed- yeah. education would be the major factor that 
uh, will edu- more edu- uh, more educated they are, mm-hmm. the laborers will choose wisely. Yeah, um, yeah. But is there any other factors? Where no, that's quite right. And so, so I think the the the, the method that has been tried over and over again and not so effective is mm-hmm. is to say that well, employers must do X, and I will enforce X because uh, for em- employers they don't do X, and em- enforcement is always uh, mm-hmm. difficult and costly. And so, so the the other thing that is being debated, you no, know, since we cannot work on the employer side as mm-hmm. well, so why don't we change the ability of workers to say no? And so there's a lot of debate on, you know, can we provide better social safety nets for those who are unemployed? Is there a reason why we should impose a minimum wage, which is another huge topic, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right? Uh, where you know currently, right, is going on uh, as well. So, um, so there are two sides to to that story as well. But a minimum wage is, you know, is one of those things where, so the minimum wage itself is is another one of those ways in which. You can allow workers to to better negotiate a wage because you well, say the government is saying that the minimum wage is X. You know why aren't you paying me X? As an economist, like this is such a gray area and gray market. Like how do you even collect data or or fo- you know like do your research on this topic yeah. without being, for example, as you mentioned, the China Labor Watch. Like they're sort of breaking. Yeah. Uh, undercover agent yeah. to yeah, yeah. break into the the yeah. factory to see the what's going on yeah. and uh, um, but for you, you uh, like where do you get the information how do you process the data or yeah no a lot of googling helps <laughs> 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 Just sit there and Google. Um, but uh, but no. Um, but I think that's where a lot of really creative work gets done uh, mm. in 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 our area. So so I've done some work on trafficking, and there are other economists who have done some work on illicit transfer of money. I'll just give you one example where, uh, you know, there's this um, uh, debate on terrorists transferring money illegally across country, you know, mm-hmm. exactly how do they do it and how do we measure it and so on. So uh, so, so actually there are economists who decided to, to use this interesting thing, right? So in the collection of trade data, all right, so I export to you, country A export to country B. Yeah. And so there is a, a record of that flow both in country A and country mm-hmm. B. And so those numbers are never the same. Mm. Yeah. So, so the discrepancy between these numbers indicate, right, uh, according to a lot of economists, the extent of corruption and the extent of... Uh, oh. so, so that difference yeah. is a measure of the extent of illicit flow of money. Oh. Right. So, and where does that take place? In which type of goods and so on? Those are those are those are interesting questions, and then people are beginning to look into that. So, so money flow. So, mm-hmm. so, so, so trade flow and mirrored trade flows mm-hmm. and so yeah. on. So. I think yeah. Professor Chow's yeah. advice is so warm advice could bring our podcast to the end. Okay, yeah. <laughs> that was fast. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, thank you, Professor Chow, for sharing today. And thank you, Professor David Just. All right, folks, here it comes to the end. We are so glad you're enjoying our podcast, Mad Hat Economics. Um, please share or contact us. You can always find more from our website and Twitter or just simply email us madhatecon at gmail.com. We're yeah. looking forward to hearing from from you. Have a good one. Bye.